2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, co-host. I'm here with Max Linsky, my fellow co-host. Hello, Evan. Aaron's not with us right now, and part of the reason is that we're, uh, you may have noticed if you're a regular Longform Podcast listener, that we did not put out a show on Wednesday, which was the day after the election, uh, and that was because, uh, Max, why was that? We, uh, we didn't feel like it. <laughs> the, the short answer is... Nailed it. Uh, we, we didn't want to, we had an episode. It's this episode. It's this same episode, but it had an intro with the three of us that was full of jokes. Yeah. I made like uh, a bunch of bad jokes. Just didn't feel like a good time. People had a lot to think about, but now we are ready to put it out. So here we are. Who is on this week's episode of the long form podcast, Evan? This week I talked to Susan Casey. Susan Casey is, uh, an author. She's written three I think they're all three New York Times bestsellers. Uh, she wrote this book called Devil's Teeth, which I really, really like about great white sharks. And she wrote a book about big wave surfing, but she also has had a whole incredible career in magazines. She was the editor of O Magazine. She worked at Time Inc. She edited Sports Illustrated for Women. She was the creative director at Outside. She's a really, really fascinating, cool person. This was obviously taped before the election happened. We didn't talk about the election. Uh, but maybe everybody needs a little uh, something that doesn't reference the election these days. I will say there is a lot of conversation uh, in this interview about the planet mm-hmm. and about uh, nature and our connection to it. And uh, all I will say is uh, maybe right now that would be a good thing for people to do. It's, it's a great time to just get outside. <laughs> Go outside. That's like my only piece of parenting advice. And it is also my only piece of advice uh, for dealing with this moment is go outside. <laughs> Max, if you wanted to share that advice with a large group of people, how would you do it? I would say it on a podcast. And then I would put it in an email newsletter. And if I were to do that, uh, there's only one choice, and it's MailChimp. Over 8 million businesses use MailChimp. Longform does, and the Atavis does. Correct. And uh, if you have a business or just an idea, you should try MailChimp. You might have something to say right now. But here, actually right now, in this exact moment, is uh, Evan and Susan Casey. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for coming this way. You've just come down from Hawaii to the Hudson Valley to here. That's right. And I have 
uh, so many things that I want to ask you about. I feel like we've had over 200 people on this podcast, writers, editors, and your career might most successfully span the widest range of magazine-related and writing-related endeavors. <laughs> um, so you obviously have a sort of drive for adventure and a love for the ocean and a sort of fearlessness about that. And then also a deep curiosity about magazines and writing and skill in both of those areas. And I'm curious, did those things start when you were extremely young or were they developed later in life? What's the sort of origin? I think I've always been a writer. I don't think you decide to be a writer. And I do have these pieces of paper that somehow my mother kept probably written when I was about four where I don't know how I ever knew to do it, but there's copy edit. I had written something and then I had copy edited it and there were copy <laughs> editing marks on it and they're actually correct. So I don't really know where that came from. But the thing that really started even before any magazine work was I was very involved with sports. I was a competitive swimmer. I had Olympic hopes and when I realized that wasn't going to happen, I switched to bike racing. So my interest wow. in adventure and magazines and such really came after university when my athletic career was sort of ebbing. And I was in the United States, but I'm Canadian and I didn't have a visa. You went to college in the U.S. I did. I went to the University of Arizona on a swimming scholarship. And when that was over... I didn't have a visa to stay. And I remember the concept was so bizarre. Like, what do you mean I have to leave? So I was in this life that I really liked and studying things I was fascinated by. And all of a sudden I was back in my room, you know, in Toronto in my parents' house and ended up volunteering at this startup magazine in Toronto called T.O. Magazine. Huh. And I literally was creating layouts using like wax and pieces of paper and things. And it turned out that I was actually quite good at that. And in pretty short order, got offered an art director job at another magazine, another city magazine in Canada called V in Vancouver. So it was a number of initial magazines. <laughs> yeah, they all went with just yeah, the letters. I fell into art directing and I loved magazines. And I loved the idea that words and images would somehow have this relationship where the whole was more than the sum of the parts. And that was the love of magazines for me. And from there, I ended up, this was my fantasy, was that somebody would just give me a green card, which is about as unlikely as anything. But then I actually ended up getting a green card in the green card lottery. And, yeah. You know, the very first one. And wow. the odds were like a quadrillion to one. I ended up... And so then... Uh, uh, I sort of pinballed my back down to San Francisco and I was the art director of that clothing company, Esprit. I uh -huh. don't know if you remember, yeah. for a very brief period of time and, and came to the very quick conclusion that designing wasn't fun if it wasn't somehow narrative storytelling. And I didn't want to use any of my communication skills for advertising or selling. It just wasn't as much fun and it wasn't anything that interested me. And from there, I went to outside. And did you have any training in design at all or were you, did you just learn it entirely through doing it? Uh, pretty much entirely through doing it. I studied French literature in school and a little bit of studio art, but nothing applied, nothing practical. Uh -huh. yeah, and this was, was in the era of uh, almost manual design, oh, yeah. like no, wax the, pencils and all that. It was just ending. You know, I, I think we got a Mac at V. We started doing <laughs> that at V. Um, yeah. So it was like, it was the early days. And so you got the job at Outside and were you a designer there? Where you did you go right in as you were basically design director or creative director at some point? Did I you... was a creative director. I was hired as the creative director, and um, that was where I really started to see 
the whole picture, and again, was sort of self-taught in writing. You know, I'd studied literature, but I hadn't really been writing in any sort of concerted way. But at outside, I was surrounded by these incredible journalists, you know, and I would look at the edits, I would look at the stories. And of course, I was in charge of creating the way they looked and appeared in the magazine. Uh And this seems like, we were talking about this a little bit before, a real heyday of not just, I mean, of magazines in general, but also of outside. This is outside winning multiple national magazine awards, John Krakauer, like Tim Cahill, like all of these great writers, all these great editors in one place. What was that atmosphere like? It was incredible. I mean, you know, when I look back on who was there, okay, so there was John, there was Tim, there was David Quammen, there was Hampton Sides, you know, and that's just the staff people. And we had the chance to see manuscripts coming in from all these different generations of writers. Susan Orlean, it it was, for me, there couldn't have possibly been a better place to be, and you're right, at a better time, because it was sort of the peak of... And it was also in the sweet spot of things I was interested in. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really was this nexus of sports and adventure and exploration. And yeah, it was a really good time. I kind of um, imagine when I was looking back on a bunch of your work and reading your books and then reading someone referenced that Susan Orlean, the blue Cru- the story that later became yeah. that movie Blue Crush was during that time period. And I sort of imagine you being in the office and seeing that story and saying something like, hey, I... I could go do that story. Well, it's funny. That Susan Orlean story, I assigned that to her because that was for women outside. And that was me looking at pictures. I think it was a Roxy Surfer Girl catalog and sort of dreaming about what would it be like to be that person? Look at the life that they have. Like that, what could be possibly more fun? And when Susan went off to Maui to report the story, I actually wanted to go with her, but I had mono. (laughs) So I didn't end up going. Um, Yeah, and so that's what I was doing. I was doing a lot of story pitching, and I started writing pitches, and I realized as much as I loved working with the editors at Outside, I had my own visions as well as as to what stories might be. Um, And so, yeah, the genesis of wanting to write really started there. It was before that, but I don't think I ever had the confidence. I I never set out as a to make it a career. I was doing, I think, pretty well as an art director, but then I got bored with it. With art directing. Yeah. And where do you feel like the confidence ultimately came from? I feel like that's something a lot of writers starting out, mm-hmm. where do they find that belief that, okay, I should be able to get that assignment. I should pitch that story. Well, my I think what happened was I was doing a lot of that at Outside, sort of stepping over the boundaries. It was a small magazine, small staff. It was the kind of place where you didn't necessarily have to stay in your lane all the time. And I really didn't. And But then... Uh, I got hired by Norman Perlstein as an editor-at-large for Timing. So that was the first time, you know, I really was acknowledged, hey, you're an editor and you're writing things. And, okay, this would have been 2000. And I don't <laughs> – there was a magazine spinoff of, out of Fortune that I think is kind of forgotten. And it's too bad because it had an, a really interesting genesis. It was called – horrible name – E-Company Now. I remember E-Company yeah. Now. And it, had, it, again, had this sort of crazily talented staff. And um, this was back when the industry standard had like this 300-page <laughs> magazine every two weeks. So we right out of the gate, we had so many pages. I was in charge of creating the template for the magazine and, you know – they had sent me from New York to do this, uh-huh. to live in San Francisco and do this. It was my first assignment. Uh, and uh, one of the people who worked there was uh, a 
wildly talented guy named Tim Carvel. Tim has gone on to to be the head writer at The Daily Show, and now he's the showrunner for John Oliver. And I uh, was basically given the option of having a column. And the column was about industrial design, and I started writing this column. That was the first thing I wrote at any length, and Tim was my editor. Uh-huh. And Tim and I just had so much fun working together. He, I, he taught me some basics very quickly. And, um, you know, we had so many pages that I could write four, five, six thousand word columns. And everybody was, it was really, we were like, how are we going to fill these pages? And suddenly I was writing. That's so funny. Yeah. That, that's very similar to how I got started writing features because I worked at Wired during exactly that era. And there were just too many pages to fill. So, hey, you want to write something? Yeah, intern wants to write <laughs> yeah. a feature? Yeah. You might as well give it to him. We got to mm-hmm. find something to fill these pages because the advertising was just through the roof. But I do also remember I'm, I was sitting around at T.O. Magazine one night. And this was a real sort of seat of the pants. It was fun. It was really had music roots. And somebody – I remember I was making my little layout with little cut pieces of paper. And I heard somebody say, oh, Hunter S. Thompson is – going to be at the University of Toronto tonight. We haven't got anybody to go and interview him. And I just remember sticking my head over the cubicle and saying, I'll go. It was, I remember that. So that was the first story I ever wrote was hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson. And I ended up spending three days with him. Oh, was so, it one of those uh, like Hunter Thompson experiences? Oh, it w- certainly was. And we became friends and we stayed in touch for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, did you go out to uh, the owl farm? I did. Oh, wow. I did. I carried his big satchel of drugs around for a while. It was it was it was interesting. Hey, it's Max. Quick word from our uh, sponsors this week. First up is HelloFresh, and HelloFresh has a simple goal. All they want to do is change the way that people eat forever. How do you change the way that people eat forever? You send them incredibly fresh ingredients exactly in the quantities they need to make restaurant quality meals at home in under 30 minutes. Whether you're a novice chef or super experienced with HelloFresh, you get exactly what you need to make these delicious meals. They've got the freshest ingredients and they're measured to the exact quantities. So there's no food waste. They've got like uh, dietitians on staff. So everything's balanced. Here's the thing, right? Like I work long hours. My wife works long hours and the tiny person that lives in our house with us, we want him to eat healthy. We want this kid to uh, eat healthy dinners, and sometimes it's hard to do that. HelloFresh makes it super easy. We've used it. The kid, like, hoovered the food. He loved it. So you should try, too. And here's how to do that. Go to HelloFresh.com. That's HelloFresh.com. And if you use the offer code LONGFORM, you're going to get 35 bucks off your first week of deliveries. So go try it out. Restaurant-quality meals at home in under 30 minutes. HelloFresh.com. And that promo code is LONGFORM. Also sponsoring the show this week, our friends at Squarespace. And whether you need a landing page or a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, an online store, anything you need to do on the internet, website-wise, you can do it with Squarespace, and you don't need to know a lick of code. Everything just works. It's all drag and drop. They've got these beautiful templates. And here's the thing that I feel like uh, people don't know about Squarespace. You can just go try it for free. You can go build a beautiful website. There's a free trial right now at squarespace.com. And then once you decide to uh, make a purchase, use the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. I'm telling you, you're going to do it because Squarespace is so easy. It is the way to build that website you've been meaning to build. Go check it out. Go to squarespace.com, start your free trial, and use the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off.
Squarespace, set your website apart. All right, let's get back to Susan and Evan. So then you, you worked on e-company now, and then at some point was uh, Sports Illustrated for women after that? Yeah. So what happened was I remember I was in my apartment in, in San Francisco one morning, got up, and I saw online that AOL had bought Time Warner. And I remember thinking, surely that they have that backwards. You know, Time Warner <laughs> bought AOL. It must be that. And But when that happened, almost immediately, Norman Perlstein said, okay, well, the editors at large are probably going to be something. There was only a few of us at that time. There was me, Dan Okrent, and Henry Muller. We were the three editors at large. And he said, we need a place for you where you're going to be safe from whatever comes next. And they had started Sports Illustrated for Women, and it had been spun out of SI by a lot of the female editors uh, and contributors to SI. And it had a rocky start. It was I had critiqued it, and I had just critiqued it viciously. Um, like in print, publicly? Well, I Norman had asked me to do it, so I did it for him. I see. Um, I think a few other people ended up seeing it. But... I really felt as though they didn't understand how women perceive sports. They had their Sports Illustrated notion, but women who really want to watch basketball, they're going to watch men's basketball as well. And women want to participate in sports. They don't have the same spectator culture that men do. So my notion was to turn it into a slightly distaff outside with a little bit of Sports Illustrated in it. And they needed to try something different with it because it wasn't catching on. They only done one or two issues. Um, they were more like trial issues. Hmm. So they they made me the editor uh, of Sports Illustrated for Women, and I think I had about six weeks to redesign it, and, and did. So you wrote this critique, and then they said, okay, why don't you... Yeah. That sounds good. Why don't you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So I went and did that, and I, that lasted about two and a half years. And I'm really proud of the work that we did. It was, Again, it, it, it was a great staff. It was just the magazine business in the years that I spent in it, it was so filled with talent, like just absolutely crazy embarrassment of riches. And I, it makes me sad now to think that young writers, young art directors, everybody who's coming up don't have that same environment to learn. And I know there's something different and equally exciting, but that was just a great, it paid well. It was fun. Yeah, it was good. Or even the idea that you would be someone that a uh, person above you in the corporate ladder would say, we have to protect you. We have to find a place yeah. for you. That seems like uh, not the reality of today's yeah, ma- corporate it's, it's magazine a little, world. It's a crueler world out I know, for young writers and uh, creatives in journalism, I think. And did you, the, the, the idea of Sports Illustrated for Women, I was just curious thinking back on it, like, was that the preferred uh, idea versus like making Sports Illustrated itself something that would actually appeal to a wider spectrum of people? Was that like a magazine business decision? Obviously, it was before you didn't do it, but I was just really curious about that that sort of choice. Yeah, you know, I always wanted a magazine for women like me, and now there are a lot more. You could, I really believe you could do it. We did a couple test issues of Women Outside, and they stand up really well even after all these years. Mm-hmm. But uh, the owner of Outside never, for whatever reason, uh, probably financial, never really got behind it. And every other attempt to do it has been on a really small scale. And I don't really think they ever wanted to change Sports Illustrated. I mean, it's still massive, and it's really aimed at the big four, particularly football. It's 
the appearance of women in Sports Illustrated is largely relegated to the swimsuit issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then the Olympics, they'll have their, the odd piece. So it did make sense to do a different one. But this was a monthly. I think also the idea would have been there's a lot more advertising targeted to this particular group that would never go into a weekly, particularly that one. So it was definitely viable. But at that time, it was never going to be, a, say, a two or three million Cirque magazine, and that's what they were interested in. So when it shut down, it was more or less because it didn't make financial sense for that company. I think it was on its feet, and it probably could have survived in a different environment. And what was the experience like for you when it when it was shut down? Like, did you have to... Well, once again, they, they treated me fantastically, and I, I was promoted. <laughs> and everybody on staff ended up finding jobs within the company, and it was, it, it was really well handled really well. Oh, wow. it, was, it was sad, but at around that same time, I had um, been really interested in the Farallon Islands, and they had offered me the chance to write about it for time and offered me a lot of resources, offered me the chance to start my own larger-scale women's magazine. So that's what I was working on. So it wasn't that traumatic. Although, you know, it is kind of like losing somebody dear to you. I mean, when a magazine folds, it really is like a, a friend has disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. And so you you started getting interested in the Farallons. Um, and that, you write about it in, in the book, sort of how that interest came about through a documentary that you once saw. But then talk a little bit about the process by which you ended up writing a book. I was at Outside Still, and I actually still had mono when I saw that documentary. <laughs> and it was a David that's Attenborough. Right. That is, that's mono also in really the intro of that it. book. Yeah. I know. And I really remember I couldn't sleep. I was The satellite dish was on. I got the BBC British feed, and there was something by David Attenborough. And I was interested in anything aquatic. And there was this water that just looked incredibly spooky, these rocks that just looked like something... My first thought was this has to be in the Southern Hemisphere because I've never seen anything like it. And this is after years of editing photos of the wildest places on Earth for outside. Never seen this place. And here are these two guys in this little rowboat, these two scientists. And and here's a pack of great white sharks coming up to the boat, biting the motor. Like, where is this place? So when I found out where it was, really part of San Francisco city proper, you know, 27 miles west of the Golden Gate Bridge. You could see it on a good day. Almost. And I lived out there and would see it, and nobody knew what it was. If you'd asked 10 people on the street in San Francisco in, in 2000, what are the Farallon Islands, maybe one would know something, and that person would be a sailor who really just knew to be afraid of them. When I started researching, I found out that almost nothing had ever been written about it. And, of course, once I started going there, I found out why nothing <laughs> had been written about it. Well, no one could even get there. For oh, one yeah, thing. You it's just hellacious. It's off limits. It's forbidden. It's this. It's that. It's so dangerous. But the time people were – Walter Isaacson was the editor at that point, and one of the editors said that they would love it if I would write an American scene piece for it because it's a really – it's a corner of America that – it isn't even on maps most of the time. It's often cut off. And this was back in the day when we had money. And so I chartered a boat and went out there. Once I saw it, I got a permit to be on the island, which is very hard. It was incredible. National Geographic at that point hadn't even had one. And so I was winched off of the boat and onto the island. You have to be plucked off by crane. And I went during shark season. So the largest congregation of great white sharks in the world uh, comes there every fall. And these two very maverick scientists had 
started studying these sharks and realized that not only were these sharks congregating there, but it was the same sharks. So they they had named them. They had started studying them in this really unique way, uh, pretty unorthodox. And so I met them. I didn't see any sharks that first time. I did see a headless seal carcass floating there. <laughs> and I came back and I was – they had invited me the chance to come back the following year and stay as an intern for a while. And, of course, I was going to do that. But in the meantime, I started researching it and found out that at one point there had been a town out there and there was a, a war had taken place and people had been murdered. And the more I found out really through deep historical research, because this is all – we're talking 19th, 18th century. Uh-huh. Even, you know, from World War II back to, say, the early 18th century, there was this – everything I found out about it was weird. And so then I, that's when I started thinking maybe this is a book. So when Sports Illustrated for Women shut down, suddenly I had my time to write the book. And they encouraged me to write the book uh, as part of my – you know, it was it, I had tremendous support from Time Inc. Wow. Everything yeah. you're describing from it – is, Isn't it wonderful? It it's like, like... – <laughs> I'm waiting for yeah. the more angsty uh, part of this to surface. Well, you know, that did come. <laughs> when I look across all of your books, The Wave and then more recently The Dolphin Book, one thing that I kept thinking was, in your life outside of reporting, are you a sort of adventure-seeking, thrill-seeking person? Or do you put on your reporter's cap or what have you and say, okay, now I'm I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this story? It's both, actually. But mm. the, the funny thing is, I, I people often ask me, or you will say, you must be fearless. I'm always afraid of it, whatever it is. Yeah. But I, it, for whatever reason, I think it's partly naivete, partly just overwhelming curiosity. I am also not going to let fear stop me from doing things, even if I feel it. it. Unless it's that pure, you know, you do have to listen to your body sometimes if it tells you not to do something that, you know, could result in you really never coming up from falling on the 70-foot wave or something like that. What drives me the most is curiosity, particularly around any aquatic environments. I really want to see what's in there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Do you have a mode of sort of getting people to open up or sort of getting into these groups? Like you, you write a little bit about the this big wave surf community. And it's not a community that's necessarily you can just walk up and say, hey, I just want to hang out with you. Like they have a culture. And then these two scientists who live on the Farallons, they have a sort of insular thing going. Do you have an approach that you have developed for breaking into those situations? Or does it feel like that just comes naturally in some way? If I do have an approach, it's legitimate curiosity and the desire to understand them as well as I can. And as you said, these are all things that they don't necessarily have the welcome mat rolled out. But in in both cases, I had a a big asset, and that was that a magazine had sent me there. And people get really, when you say, hey, I want to write a book about you, people are sort of like, what? But when you say Sports Illustrated wants me to write about you, I'd pitch a profile of Laird Hamilton to Sports Illustrated you know, it was part of my job to write for various Time Inc. magazines. Mostly I wrote for Sports Illustrated and Fortune. And so they had never run a profile of, of Laird. He's one of the greatest athletes on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And so they they greenlighted that, and that's how I met him. And immediately we had this kindred spirit thing because we're both more happy in the water than we are on land. And so I wrote the story for Sports Illustrated. And after that, that's when I approached him. And he said, well, I want to... You know, I was going to approach you because I want to write 
I think I'd like to do something. And so that's when I decided, well, I think maybe it's two books. And I wrote a book as Laird called Force of Nature. Uh-huh. And it was more of a service journalism book, um, you know, how he eats, how he trains, because people were very interested in that. Uh, and that that enabled me to get to know him better. And eventually, you know, the wave, I, I moved to Maui. I, I will go to some extreme uh, lengths and to get to spend time with people. I've been really fortunate and I've had the backing of magazines to allow me to do that. It's changed a little bit now. We'll see how that changes going forward. I don't really know. But it is a good door opener to uh-huh. be able to say, you know, I'm writing about you for time. Yeah. 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 And so, even so did the you did the story the story that won the National Magazine Award was about the guy that Laird Hamilton trains with for Esquire. Was that before all this or did that come out of already having written about him and then finding out about the trainer? Yeah, well, he, that that's an 80, now he's 81 or 82. His name's Don Wildman. And I met him when I started writing about Laird because there are there's a sort of group of people around Laird all the time. And one of his most ferocious training partners is Don Wildman, who's, at the time I met him, he was 73 or 74. And he he could leave anybody. Laird had a hard time keeping up with, he could keep up with Laird better than anybody. And I found that fascinating. And around that time, I was actually writing a a little column at Esquire called The Overstimulated Girl, where I would take performance-enhancing drugs, (laughs) but only things that were good for me. You know, it was like a sort of a precursor to the whole biohacking movement that is is on now. And, And I'd take them for a month and then report on how I felt. So I had gotten to know David Granger, and I knew the 75th anniversary was coming up. And we decided it would be fun to write about an absolutely incredibly high-performing 75-year-old. So that's how I met Don and came to write about him. And he's still uh, he's still at it. Oh, God, yes. I mean, he bra- has broken so many bones. He's better than ever. So he, he broke his femur when he was about 79 or even 80. He broke his femur and ended up having this gorgeous nurse and then marrying her. So <laughs> he's doing great. I want to write a sequel, actually. Uh, keep trying to find should, somebody who will let me write a sequel. He's like a cult figure. Yeah, actually. going back to yeah. read that story now. The, of course, my first question is like, well, where is he now? Is he still? I, I still, doing still it? couldn't keep up with him on a mountain bike. <laughs> um, so I'm curious with these books, how you set about finding structure and and how how you sit down to actually write books. I feel like maybe over the three, the scope has gotten even wider. Like the first one is at least narrowly, it's around the Farallons, but by the most recent one, Dolphins, is a tr- that's, that's a huge subject. Like you could go almost anywhere with that topic. So how did you go about figuring out how to be a book author, like how to structure that sort of length? Well, I think I was a little bit fortunate in that the Farallons was kind of a single location with main characters. So that that enabled me to learn. I mean, my my learning trajectory has been a pretty steep one. You know, but at the same time, I've had so many great mentors and great opportunities that I, I my feeling is I just I'm gonna spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about it, reporting it. Each book has taken me five years. It and it really has been the Dolphin book reporting wise was the hardest because as you said that not only was the it was a global reporting job, but 
I also didn't want to just focus on one species of dolphin. You know, the obvious one would be bottlenose dolphins mm-hmm. like flipper. But dolphins run the gamut. It's just this crazy rainbow spectrum of dolphins, everything from tiny three-foot-long little dolphins up to orcas. And each one of them is a culture, a tribe, you know, individuals that really require a certain amount of individual treatment. And they all have huge rafts of science. (laughs) And I do such in-depth scientific reporting that the dolphin book almost killed me just in sheer volume of paper that I was sorting through. My office just was piles and sheaths of of reporting on dolphins and then and then of course my own reporting so then how do you sort of start to bring it together do you have some usually a couple characters will rise to the surface i mean in the farallons i got to, to sort of take two characters all the way through likewise with the wave but i brought in bigger digressions and um i i look for the characters that are actually willing to let me hang out with them for really unreasonable amounts of time that will let me come to their house. And it really, after a while, think of me as somebody who's just part of their life. And if a person in the beginning is closed-lipped or cagey or, you know, some scientists aren't that articulate, I really sort of move on till I can find somebody who I connect with. And I structure the book based on the characters that have really resonated with me. But I do think that that's, for the kinds of books I'm writing, narrative structure is one of the biggest challenges. One thing all three books have in common is they're sort of a quest. And they they stem from the sentence, what do you mean that blank? You know, what do you mean there's a neighborhood of great white sharks and they live in the 415 area code? Mm-hmm. I'm going to find out what is going on here and come along with me. You know, what do you mean there are these guys that are surfing 100-foot waves or we're we're losing two ships a month? And the scientists don't even know what rogue waves are. Let's go find out what's up with that. I mean, this matters to us. We live, we're we're creatures that like to live along coastlines. We like to be on the water. So the driving narrative thread is usually my quest to find out what the hell is going on. And I'm always cognizant of the fact that I have to keep that line pretty tight. Because one thing that I really don't agree with is this notion that people won't read long form anymore. Mm-hmm. They will read it. You just the bar is getting higher and higher as to keep their attention, you know, taut throughout the entire scope of the book. And do you think I think you're you're in a pretty rare position. I mean, you've had three books that are bestsellers, and I'm assuming that a lot of the people who read Devil's Teeth would like went on to read the second one, went on to read the third one. Potentially, do you think about a readership for your books and and who they are, or do you try to stay away from like envisioning that person? I think it's been fortunate and probably it, not accidental that the, I've written three books about the ocean. So anybody who's interested in reading one book about the ocean and likes it might, of course, logically go look at the others, and. I don't know that I would necessarily say my fourth book will be about the ocean, but the truth is it's what I'm most passionate about. So if I can convey that passion on the page, as long as I can keep doing that, I'm probably going to keep writing about the ocean. Yeah. But I don't think it's anything that's like rigidly calculated. Yeah. It would be different if it was something you didn't love yourself, that you were just sort of like, I'm good at writing about science. I don't love science. But if you're you know, Obsessed I do I do ocean. love science, but I, I actually love all science. But I also feel like there's an important role to be played by somebody who's not a scientist, who's going to delve into the science and maybe come back with some of the narratives that 
the same minds that are brilliant enough to conduct the science don't always have the same set of communication skills at that level. Mm-hmm. So uh, Mary Roach does the same thing. We talk about it all the time. It's, you know, we're we're a proxy for the curious person. Like, what do you mean you're doing this? Uh, and I think it's important. And I also think it's important to sometimes challenge science, to step over the line of what they, – they have all these rules of what they can and can't do, and they're necessary. But for me – I don't, I'm not beholden to those rules. Have you had situations where you feel like you pushed those rules and then you got pushed back from the scientists when the book came out? Well, you know, I always make sure that science is deadly accurate. So not from the scientists, but I do think that in the Dolphin book, I took a step into the metaphysical. And I did it purposefully because there are certain subcultures associated with dolphins that are incredibly colorful and wacky and interesting and highly populated where they think dolphins are, you know, from other planets. That These are things that scientists just roll their eyes at. But as a person who loves to write about the subcultures of whatever subject I'm tackling, um, it was just incredibly rich material for me. So, you know, people will say, well, why did you write about these crazy people? It's because they're really interesting in their craziness. I was really interested in those parts of the book because you were sort of simultaneously not endorsing their views, but not saying they were right, but also not saying that they were totally insane. Or if they were insane, they were insane in an interesting way. But do you get to the end of the book and sort of say, here's my opinion about these people? You know, I think the reader can kind of see where I'm going. I'd never really tried to tell the reader what to think. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being passionate about something in a in a sort of a half-cracked way. I mean, they're not hurting anybody. It's I'm not the belief police is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I mean, I I just I love people that are obsessed by something and I love genius and, you know, some of these scientists are geniuses, but then, you know, you see them and they're talking about dolphins and referring to them as stocks. And I just don't want to do that. I really want to engage the heart as well as the mind. So there's an emotional experience and not just a factual experience. To me, that's where science sort of falls short. And I think we're being called right now to literally think with the mind and the heart. Uh-huh. Uh, I think we need to do that. We're We're screwing up the environment terrifically by thinking of these things as inanimate or separate or outside ourselves. And we we need to get back on track with this. One thing we haven't uh, talked about yet is that in in, amidst all these books, you then became the editor-in-chief of (laughs) O Magazine. I feel like that's an interesting story of how, because it feels like you were out writing books and you didn't necessarily have to come back to the world of running magazines and being in an office. And what triggered that return? Well, I didn't want to come back at first. And in fact, I was offered the O job twice. And the first time I said no. And it wasn't because I didn't want to do it because I had still had this dream of creating a women's magazine that could be different, that could have ambitious. Now, now the women's magazines have all really, any magazine that's out now has got high quality work in it. But I, why, I always felt like I was writing for Esquire. I was writing for Fortune. I was writing for Sports Illustrated. I wanted to create a women's magazine with that kind of writing environment, but I also felt like it would be great if it was really commercially successful because then you can change the paradigm a little bit better. Uh-huh. You know, you can go off and do something, and people are doing it now in, in tremendously creative ways, but the technologies for that didn't necessarily all gel till pretty recently. You know, to start your own magazine was required huge amounts of investment 
cash and distribution chains and all kinds of things that that made it daunting, right? It wasn't as if you could do something with the technology we have now. You can it, it's a beautiful time for grassroots publishing in that way right now. So O was intriguing to me because it never really fit the mold. It, it under its editor Amy Gross, it had it, it first of all it was a big, fat, successful magazine, but it never spoke down to its readers ever, and it was free from some of the women's magazine constraints, say being a purely fashion or beauty book. It didn't have that. And when I met Oprah, we we hit it off. I wasn't somebody who was following her very closely, her show, but I had seen things she had done that I had admired. And when I met her in person, I just thought, here's a really smart woman who's doing something very interesting and has sort of a sweet, generous life. So I wanted to do it, but I was right in the middle of reporting the wave, and I did not want to compromise that. But I remember at the time, it it was around the time of the financial crash, and it was it was financially scary to turn it down and right. i had agreed to move to hawaii to to work so i went to hawaii i was you know sort of in the middle of nowhere near these giant waves i was writing about and then my father died very suddenly and i felt very marooned very alone um for the first half of writing that book and then as it happened the editor who had come in when i said i couldn't do it ended up not working out and so they came back. And this time I had finished the reporting and enough of the writing that I thought, I can do this. And it would be an interesting experience to do a women's magazine that really has this massive circulation and has ambitions, too. So I And, and I came back and, you know, I realized I'm going to have to put on shoes. I'm going to have to brush <laughs> my hair. I'm going to have to do, you know, I was a little bit in shock. I was It was a little bit of a culture shock after a couple of years of being in the wilds of Hawaii. But I'm really glad I did it. And I had a really good time doing it. Uh, I did it for four years. And um, did you feel like you accomplished yeah. what when you were looking at it, you said something really interesting could be done with this? Did you feel like you were able to to do that within that context? In some ways, yes. There are some some issues I really liked and some work that I'm really proud of. Uh, but around that time, it started getting a lot less fun in the magazine world. And the the pressures that were coming from the the corporation and publishing. I mean, I left before native advertising really became a thing. My feeling, going back to my days at Esprit, is if I'm going to do advertising, I'll go work at an advertising agency, you know, and get paid three times <laughs> as much. I, if I want to do advertising, I would go into advertising. <laughs> I don't want to go into advertising. So I understand the need for it, but I lament the fact that it's part of reality now. And I was getting more and more of that. And I was also realizing how much of my job involved managing about 70 people. Mm-hmm. It's a, a big, big business, that magazine. Um, and so I left purposefully. I left because I felt for two reasons. One, it was I've never been somebody who wanted to stay anywhere for huge long life. I stayed at Time Warner for 10 years because they kept letting me move around. Yeah. Four years at O was about the right time for me. And I wanted to write books that my goal is to reconnect us to nature in a way that will, not a, not in a scary way, but it's an urgent time right now for us to do that. And I did not feel like I had a lot of time to waste. Mm-hmm. And do you know now, uh, do you have an idea of what your next book is? Are you are you in the search mode right now? I'm in search mode. I have got two ideas, and I'm excited about both of them. 
I have to wait till one of the tumblers clicks before I can find just get a full green light for myself. Uh huh. Eric Larson talks about that too. Yeah, he will, he will tell anyone what the ideas are yeah. until one of them breaks through. I don't think it's a good idea to do that actually because it's it's I don't know if there's some superstition involved or that you just really need to work it through in your own mind. And I write incredibly long book proposals. I usually spend the better part of a year writing a book proposal. And I do that for my purposes as well as anybody else's. Because by the time I start, I know there's a book there. It's it's going to keep me busy during the time, you know, if at the end of four years I'm bored out of my mind by the subject material, it probably wasn't a book. So all of my books, I'd like to revise them at some point because I'm still interested in the subject. Wow. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Susan Casey for coming in. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Karen Lammer of Longform. Thanks, Mickey Capper, for editing this episode and to our intern, Courtney Harrell. And as always, thanks to our sponsors, HelloFresh, Squarespace, and the ever-present MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Hold up. 